Hello, everybody. It's Lou Zant. And Meredith Griffin. Welcome to another episode of Major Crush. Love it. <laughs> and make sure you like and subscribe. That yeah. really helps us. And you can see the link down at the bottom of the uh, notes. Show notes, yep. Show notes and our website, majorcrushwines.com. You know what, Mayor? I'm a little excited. We are excited. We just keep uh, rolling and finding some cool new interviews, <laughs> don't cool we? Some cool stuff. Yeah. Some cool stuff. Yeah. It's really, I'm, I'm excited because, you know, I kind of hit the ball out of the park in the 90s business-wise <laughs> and, you know, got into a lot of exciting pre-IPOs, IPOs. Mm -hmm. I took a company public in the 90s, took another one public in the teens, and, um, you know, I've had the experience behind public companies. And, and it really, you know, it got to the point where it didn't make a lot of sense. You know, what mm -hmm. was I investing in? There were so many, you know, that what, what exactly was I investing in, you know? But you and I know wine. We know wine, and we really like to geek out. And I think this is going to be a really unique spin for our listeners to talk to these young guys about yeah. their project and where how you invest in wine because it's still kind of blowing That's my brain a little That's bit. That's really confusing, you know? Yeah. Because you hear this from this guy, that from that guy, and, you know, everybody's got the biggest and the best. To have a team like they've put together mm -hmm. that'll vet it out, and um, I'm trying to think of the right word, Nick, um, you know, like uh, leverage your, your risks, you know, yeah. well, mitigate your risks. Yeah. You know, by spreading it out. So we got Nick and Billy. From Vint. From Vint. Vint. Yeah. And uh, Nick's from uh, Virginia. And Billy's down here in the L.A. area. Where are you from originally, Billy? Actually, Virginia, too. Oh, okay. Well, that. Okay, so you guys gotcha. know each other from back home. No, or, you don't. Yeah, we're, we're, oh, funny story how, and this is Nick speaking. Thank you for having us, by the way. Oh, we're, yeah. we're super oh, excited. Well, thanks but, for joining us. Um, yeah, Billy is, is our head of wine at Vint. And obviously, we'll dive into what we actually do. But the really funny <laughs> story about meeting Billy was maybe six months ago, we were looking for just a wine blog writer. Uh, we still had day jobs. We were getting all of our qualifications, and we just wanted someone to put out content. So there's this platform called Upwork, and it's a freelancer site where you can post a job, and generally you get av <clears throat> average to mediocrity, okay. and that's not what we got with Billy. So No, I, you knocked it out of the park there, yeah, brother. I, uh, I found him on the platform. We messaged on LinkedIn, and he spent the first 15, 20 minutes of our call talking about Hey, what is this business? It seems really interesting. I've been looking to invest in a in a wine project. So Billy ended up investing in the company. He ended up working part-time with us on a trial run, and he was our first full-time employee as our head of wine. Oh, well, you, you knocked the cover off the ball. The guy's got not only a fun personality, but he knows his wine, and yeah. it's really great. And you didn't know each other from Virginia. Were you still in, were you in L.A. at that point, or were you still in Virginia yeah, when that, you guys— that okay. was just this March, March of— 2021. So oh, okay. I left Virginia years ago. Oh, okay. It's been, I graduated grad school in 2015, so okay. I haven't been back since. That's, that's kind of a, I, not a coincidence, obvious, that you guys No, it's synchronicity for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 And tell us a little bit, Billy, about your background with wine. Yeah. So after grad school 2015, that was, I got my master's in creative brand management, moved to New York, very close to basically the, the mecca, I guess, of 
wine from around the world, basically unlimited access to European wines, mm-hmm. wines from South Africa, South America, mm-hmm. Australia. So after watching Psalm for probably the millionth time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. <laughs> I was just curious about how to they started the process. So I found out you could just sign up, take the test. So that was December of 2016. By May the 2017, I was a certified Psalm. So I just started wow. studying for the intro, passed that in March. Didn't think I, that was like enough of accreditation, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and then a month and a half later, six weeks later, I passed the intro by just basically tasting nonstop and getting a tray to practice serving around my little New York apartment. I would oh, just cool. like open bottles of kava really? in the morning for practice. <laughs> yeah. Serve invisible people, which paid off because the certified exam, you do serve one master psalm and five invisible people. Oh, so. oh invisible people. Yeah, okay. he, was, he was serving invisible people of kava every morning. That was fun. I didn't I realize it. that. That's yeah. awesome. And I had a buddy who hates wasting alcohol, so every morning he would be like, what are you doing? And yeah. Like, hey, Bill, I'll come over and clean your house. Yeah. Here's <laughs> breakfast. Yeah. Here's our I'll, do, breakfast. I'll do your dishes, Billy. But um, yeah, so after passing the certified, I was still working in advertising, trying to figure out what I was going to do with wine. And then ended up just quitting my job there because I could read about wine, I could taste it, but I wanted to make it. I wanted to see what the viticultural side was like. So then I quit my job, moved to Australia. Um, I knew a winemaker down there, a buddy from college, but he was far away. So I basically just packed up and drove into the middle of nowhere in South Australia. They gave me an address. And just That's said, show up this day, and I was amazing. hoping it existed after driving for like three hours and just feeling. Uh, you could do oh. that in Australia, you know. <laughs> so in southern Australia? Aust- South Aust- Australia, between uh-huh. Adelaide and Melbourne. Okay, Kind okay. of by um, Kunawara is uh-huh. the most famous for, like region right nearby. Yeah. I, l- I love that area, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really with do. its like meter of like bright red terrassa soil and then this bright white limestone just beneath. Really cool cabs. Yeah. Oh, I want to visit there. But yeah, that's inc- I got to tell you, that's awesome that you just packed up and went there. And we talked a little bit about that on our first conversation because yeah. you ended up in Tasmania or you spent some time in Tasmania, right? Yeah. So while there, I did two and a half weeks before touring like the mainland of Southeast Australia. And then okay. after vintage, did a lap of Tasmania. So tasted <sighs> counterclockwise around. Oh, awesome. Gosh, was that just like ridiculous? Oh, yeah. Between like the hiking and the random weather and then just the sparkling in the top northeast corner was amazing. It was just wild. The only downside was I was doing it by myself. So I kept like turning to like. Oh. Yeah, to tell somebody that's about n- it. Yeah, that's I no fun. That. Yeah. yeah. So, well, yeah. Yeah. I ended up buying a bunch of bottles to bring home so that I could share them. You eventually. could share. When yeah. That's what I love about Meredith. When you, I taste something like, Mer, you got to try Yeah, it. I know. Well, we talked about when we were our first call that we all had together just so we could learn about Vint and talk about doing a podcast together. I At the time I was doing for our um major crush our collection we had decided to do like a we're gonna travel let wine allow us to travel to these places we want to go and so we talked I picked Tasmania so it was ironic we happened to talk as I had just picked Tasmania to write about and I had just finished the W set section on sparkling and learned about how fantastic these Tasmanian sparkling wines were but it's so hard to find here in the U.S. to found a couple thanks to your help but I didn't find one of the good good sparklings to share with you today, but I did find a Tasmanian Chardonnay toll puddle. So I'm sharing it with you for the first time. So I haven't had this before. Um, but I, for my research, you know, I'm always about R and D. Yeah, no, we do. We need. I to do research. my R and D very hey, well. What would be without it here? Uh... So we did bring some Tasmania Chardonnay, and you said you did you did see where toll puddle was while you were down in Tasmania. Yeah. So I actually got to visit. 
the winery who makes this, they bring the grapes actually in from Tasmania. They keep them cold the whole time mm-hmm. so they stay fresh. It's actually in the Adelaide Hills, which is another oh, yeah. cool climate region of Australia. It's kind of weird because it's like tucked in, but it gets cool breezes. Yeah. So they know how to make their cool climate wines. And they yeah. source, they own this like famous vineyard in Tasmania and just bring the grapes in yeah. from there. So, um, yeah, I drove by thinking that it was an actual winery. Um, pulled up and there was no buildings, but really pretty vines. So I just took some pictures. And you know, I've on. read about Tasmania. haven't been able to um, go yet someday. And that was one of the things I was reading is very few of the wineries on Tasmania actually make their wine there just because it's such a small island. But, and just from production purposes, a lot, I've read that more of them transported across to the mainland where they can make, make the wine. Yeah. And, and one of those things is, the producers, especially in like the Barossa or certain regions, are just so hot that to get any sort of like acid, acid backbone in your Chardonnays, like say any like um, penfolds, for example, mm. they'll yeah. make some Chardonnays. Most penfolds, like the bins, are blends. So like the acid mm. backbone they'll have maybe like 20 or 30% from Tasmania to really oh. give the brightness. They're of all course. Chardonnay, but they, right? Right. They, they don't add another, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But that's just like pep it up because wherever they're sourcing may not have that backbone from the mainland. Yeah. Well, the and nose to, on this, man, is and just And to huge. dive into that a little further, because, you know, we do talk about like we love to geek out about wine and help our listeners understand that, what you're saying. And so Tasmania is obviously a very cool climate. So the grapes don't get as ripe as they would on mainland, the, um, which allows them to keep some of that bright acidity. And a lot of people hear the word acid. Acid and it freaks them out because they're like, I don't want acid in my wine, but they don't realize exactly what you're saying. If something, if the grapes are too ripe and they lack some of that acidity, the wine will kind of be flabby, as we might call it, or fall flat. So to what you're saying, Tasmania, because it's so cold, there's enough acid in there that allows for it to be bright. I'm bright. Might, I like. I know. I like the word bright. You might fix, fresh. Yeah, fresh. Ex- right. Fresh. Yeah. This even smells bright and fresh. Yeah. This is. Something I was um, describing today, we had a Chardonnay earlier that I was trying to describe as bright and fresh, and I realized when you call it linear, and I was trying to think of why it's considered linear on the palate and why people can understand that, because I I told one of our buddies we're up here with, and he was like, I I totally get the linear piece, and I think it's because you start salivating so much on the sides that you really taste it right down the middle. And that's that might a, be why oh, it feels good That's point. actually a yeah. really good yeah. point. The acid in a wine makes you salivate. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't get that... In especially something like a Chardonnay, sometimes if they're overly done, that's a great, that's a good explanation for people. Meredith, I think this wine is unbelievable. I'm, I'm liking it. How are you guys liking it? Is and it Nick, expensive? You, Nick, you haven't been to Tasmania, right? So I have not. So <clears throat> we're but also sharing this with you for a first time. Yeah, very good. Very good wine. I love this. What's interesting to me is it's so far south, so it gets all those daylight hours right. in the summer. So it's ripe, but it's so cool. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's between exactly. Australia and the and this uh, Arctic, you know, yeah. the Arctic, Arctic Circle Arctic. there. So yeah. the, Antarctica. Yeah. The amount of daylight it gets, it's ex- a very, very good point to bring up because I think we forget about that too. It's like 13% as well. So yeah. It's not like a little pushover. Yeah, no, not <laughs> at all. It's a big wine. It's a delicious wine. I could I could enjoy this with a few things here. Well, yeah. Yeah. But I also love when a problem is solved. And when I started reading and, and learning about Vint, mm-hmm. that just is what kept coming up in my mind, Meredith. You know, mm-hmm. just first of all, the world of wine is real confusing. Yes, it is. You know, this is why we started the podcast, and that's why you and I went to school. But, you know, think about investing. You know, you hear the stories. You remember when they told us in class about the 
the sommelier that dropped the bottle of Chateau Margaux that was $500,000, you know. And, and when I talk to people, friends and, and, and people that I'm driving around and stuff, and I mention a price of a wine, they always go, how do they justify that price? <laughs> and um, it, more and more of the, uh, of the problem. Mm-hmm. So, guys, give yeah. us a little bit yeah. of Once Upon a Time yeah. of why and how and, and uh, the what for on how you created this ability to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Happily. So about two years ago, I got really interested in investing in wine. So I do not have a formal training background in wine. That's why we have Billy over here who could talk for hours about Tasmanian wine and <laughs> the, the linear uh, nature of it. But I, I was interested um, thinking about it from an investment landscape. So it's like, hey, um, wine makes sense as an investable asset. People drink this stuff. The supply is always going down. It gets better with age. Um, there's a scarcity element and mm-hmm. demand should always increase. So for those of you who have taken Econ 101, <laughs> that would lead you to believe that the price should always go up. So um, I started to explore and I saw, hey, a bottle could sell for $1,000 in the U.S. That same bottle could sell for $800 in the U.K. Oh, yeah. And then $1,200 in the Asian markets. And I was like, okay, this is a really, really interesting market. Um, there's not as many competitors. Maybe there's a lot of different opportunities. So we thought, why don't we make a platform for people to invest in this asset class? We saw what was out there. It was all the same. It was send us money, you get a list of wines two weeks later. It was really yeah, opaque. Yeah. There was no educational component. Um, and it didn't have this trust factor. It's it send your money into mm-hmm. a black box and you end up with, with wines. And we thought it could be done better. So mm. maybe about a year ago, we settled down the SEC qualification process to become a fully SEC registered platform to invest in this asset class. So over the course of an eight month qualification, my co-founder Patrick and I we found people who were really knowledgeable about wine. We have two masters of wine on our wine investment committee. We have a wine investment fund manager. We brought on Billy as our head of wine to start sourcing different kinds of collections, building relationships in the UK market, which is kind of the home to fine wine trade, Mm -hmm. such that when we received SEC qualification, we were ready to roll. So about three, maybe four months ago, we received our SEC qualification. And what we actually do and what that unlocks for our business is we go out and we source collections. So our first collection was a $46,000 California collection. Mm -hmm. It was Screaming Eagle, Harlan, Opus One. We told the SEC that we were going to source that. We could then sell the collection kind of as a fund in a way. It's not a fund, but people can buy shares in it. Got it. So this $46,000 collection was broken up into 1,000 shares and $46 per share. And our main goal with Vint is to, one, bring transparency to an industry that is notoriously opaque. Two, (laughs) remove any barrier to entry, whether it is people laughing at when you laughing at you when you mispronounce a wine name, which has happened to me. Or, oh, Lou and I know nothing about that. Yeah, we don't. You, you, that's you. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. I'm alone in, in messing up names. Um, and we're if, really good at French uh, AV, uh, French AOCs. Yeah, we have a great time with that we one. We won't go down that path. Yeah. <laughs> or the fact that it might require $25,000 just to invest in a collection of wines. We thought there were a lot of things that were broken, and this SEC qualified platform is transparent, it's efficient, it's self-directed, and it's highly trusted because the SEC has reviewed all of our offerings. So to date, we have sold out six collections. Um, that first collection, it was really exciting, sold out in under an hour. Whoa. Um, wow. So we were all wow. kind of glued to the screen, hitting refresh, like, hey, we've worked on this thing for almost two years. Let's see if it works. And Patrick, our CTO, was watching everything from the back end, and we just saw shares keep going. And the first five minutes, half the collection was gone. And How did you promote it? Yeah. How do people hear about you? So a lot of word of mouth. Um, yeah. I have no shame. And I, at a certain <laughs> point, I would just tell anyone and everyone, even with a day job, I was like, hey, I'm working on this. We have a wait list. That's how we started to market it was there's a wait list for this product. Fear of loss. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> there is definitely tremendous FOMO with, with the business. But that wait list had grown to maybe 800 people before launch. Terrific. So wow. email marketing and you say, hey, this thing, it's in high demand and it might sell out quickly. And that gets people to tune in right at noon and they invest. So That's... with about three months since launch, we've done six collections and they've sold out anywhere from 50 minutes to 48 hours, all sold out really quickly, increasing in size. And yeah, from the Super Tuscan collection to a Champagne region collection, we've hit different vintages, hit different regions, and it's it's super exciting. And one yes. of the most rewarding things I think about the business is that we have these super fans. Like you mentioned, you have these people who are texting you, they're calling you, and we have that. It's, it's really cool when a person just finds your company or platform on the internet, it just resonates with them, whether it's the transparency, it's the, the authenticity, because we're not coming off as the, the high-class wine broker. It's This is for everyone. And mm -hmm. I think that really resonates with people. They're like, hey, maybe I want to come work at this company. I want to invest in this company. I want to get more involved, which has been really, really cool. That is cool. That's You've been so a busy boy, Billy, putting yeah. these things. <laughs> well, yeah, how Nick do, and I both. But yeah. Yeah. Right. How do you come up with these collections? Obviously, does it come from people who have a desire? You know, it's uh, the needs out there. These are ones they want, or is it your? Yeah. How do you it's, decide? It's a multi-step kind of process. But one thing we do want to do at the beginning is, to Nick's point, some of these other platforms, they will. You put your money in a black box, and they give you wines to invest in. But you're investing in single bottles or less. So mm -hmm. when they say like, oh, yeah. we're available for anyone, minimum investment only $1,000. Well, if you want to get a bottle of Screaming Eagle, that'll get you a fifth of a bottle. I'll buy you a glass. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, that's useless. A light pour. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So like for us, one of our goals is to bring the best wines of the world and really democratize them is the term we yeah. use. Okay. Um, and allow people to really have access to invest in these world-class wines that will appreciate over time. So that's kind of our lens number one. How do we get the best wines for the you know at the time? Mm -hmm. uh, so we go through our process. We have partners, merchant partners in the UK. We have our wine committee here, and then we basically have a ton of data that we have access to that we're constantly kind of pouring through, watching market trends, watching forecasts, and based on those and 
luckily, like um, basically our, our favorite wine regions are the most famous wines you've ever heard of. I get the, the luxury now of actually like, cool, like we think of, you know, say Super Tuscans are yeah. very interesting. Yeah. We're seeing a great trend with them. They're growing well. Mm-hmm. So then we get to dive in and we get to pick our favorites, you know, Sassakaya, Ornelia. Yeah. And I get the, like, the joy now of actually going to buy those and be like, yes, we will take a bunch of cases of those, please. Yeah. Um, that has to feel good. I know. How cool would that oh. be? And how... Ha- I mean, is it easy? Like, I think of something like Sasakai and some of those, they're not easy to get your hands on. But if you come in and you are demanding a certain number of them. Well, that's where we've, and Nick can elaborate on this, we've worked hard to develop these partnerships in many different sourcing outlets to allow us to get not only access, but good pricing based Mm. on that quantity that we can acquire. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we lean pretty heavily on our wine investment committee where there's people from California, people from the UK, they're pointing out different catalysts, mm. different trends. And it's really cool that they'll bounce ideas back and forth, challenge different ideas. And once they come up with a theme, we'll look at the data, we'll go to these supplier partners. Right now we have access for about $2.5 billion worth of fine wine and spirits that we can tap into. So with that broad access we can talk to different suppliers we're buying in pretty large volumes we can get pretty good pricing yeah. generally a lot better than mm-hmm. a retail buyer could so get. once again the investment makes sense mm-hmm. yeah um going through vent yeah uh, you know? i think the asset class is really interesting with the fact that it's always decreasing and uh, demand is increasing yeah. There's these catalysts. I think a really interesting collection that we had was a Saint Emilion upgrade Ooh. collection. So Ooh. every 10 years, there's the reclassification. Mm-hmm. And our wine investment committee member in the UK told us, hey, Figiac is looking good for 2022. It could get upgraded. So we're like, oh, wow, that's a pretty interesting piece of information. Mm-hmm. Let's build a, coll- a collection around that. So we sourced 2009, 2010, 2015, 2016 Figiac and threw that into a collection for investors to buy into. So we try and look for those different kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. yeah, you have your regional collections, but um, how can we bring differentiated wines mm. to people um, to invest in? Mm-hmm. And looking for that geographical arbitrage that we were talking about earlier, we also keep all of our wine in bond in London. So mm. it remains in pristine condition for the Asian market, if they're looking for it, and if we want to bring it to the U.S. market. Yeah, a good central, global central location. Because a lot of times when these wines are shipped to the U.S., they're immediately not saleable back in Europe or in Asia just because of that transit between. Yeah, back and forth. So that's a very important part. But also, the U.K. gets very good pricing, say, on Bordeaux. Like, Bordeaux is, it makes up 40% of investable wines these days. used to be a lot more. Um, But, like, so we have some... A collection that would have launched by the time this goes live but like okay. of 96 and 98 first gross um coming up and cheval blanc which is you know mm-hmm. premier grand cru class yeah. a so yeah basically yeah. first growth and the pricing we're able to get with our partners who have the producer connections they're in europe we can get such quality pricing there that if we wanted to bring it to the u.s or asia right now it'd be easier for us down the line to you know potentially realize a gain in value based on like historical performance that's what we would yeah. you know look at so interesting. It's cool. I was reading they have hundreds of already active investors and over 1,300 on their waiting list. I was going to say, how can people find you? But I you know. got a wait list, so that might be... Well, uh, since we emailed you guys, it's up to like closer to 16. So oh, so People are coming. Well, but you can go learn more about you guys. You do have a website. So if people just want to learn more and get on the wait list, right? Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're highly accessible. We have a chat bot in the bottom right corner that you gets... You want to see what the URL is. Yeah. <laughs> 
Vint.co. Yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, but it's it, .co, right? Dot co. Yeah, yeah dot not co. .com. No M on the end. <laughs> yes. Um, our emails are accessible. If people message us, we respond right away. And that's another thing that's worked where people are like, yeah. wow, I'm talking to the head of wine or mm-hmm. one of the co-founders just in, in the chat where generally it's like, oh, you never hear back from yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. And, we're super customer centric. We talk to anybody who's investing, especially at volume, but it's like, why are you investing? How did you find out about us? What did you like? More importantly, what did you not like? So we can fix yeah. that. Talking to customers is the best. I'm sure yeah. you all yeah. do the same. It's like, Absolutely. what's your favorite segment? Um, yeah. Absolutely. You gotta listen to your customers. Right. You know, we could go into what makes certain wines investable and expensive. But we could also discuss how great wines, regardless of the price, require the craftsmanship in the vineyards, you know, in the winery, time, and are produced in limited quantities. Like when I'm telling friends and family and visitors about it, you know, I go, all of a sudden when you go from boutique classification of, say, 10, 15,000 cases to overnight going to 350,000 cases, a million cases. Guess what happens to the production? You, you, you know, like I love the I cut. love those blueberry cookies you make. Yeah. But if you had to make a million of them, they would lose they something would be lost when you have to produce that much. Yeah. As much as you tried to stay true to what you did, you would lose something. But you got to think we even have some people that are less than 5,000 cases they're making. A, yeah, so what's your what is your Vince? What is Vince? Dot co um, philosophy and mindset as to as to approach all these you know areas you know you need to you guys need to look at every single one of those areas we mentioned well in terms of producers our approach will always be first our, our investors first but our, our macro okay. mindset is really looking to support the wine industry as a whole and mm-hmm. like when we say democratize mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. education it's accessibility and it's it's really informing and expanding the wine community well we're that's how we're very much in alignment because that's all we want is pe- more people to come love wine and crush yeah on wine. exactly i love it what makes a wine collectible well the collectible and nick kind of touched on it earlier it has to do with a few things like unique unique terroir mm-hmm. um the producers heritage tradition so that's one aspect is basically mm-hmm. where it comes from, who's making it, their approach to it. The other aspect is purely quantity. Um, mm. Some of these, like you guys were mentioned, are made in very small amounts. Yeah. So they're produced. Um, a lot of the time, some of the best wines are already allocated. People already can mm-hmm. have basically reserved their shares of them. So nobody in the public can buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're consumed. Mm-hmm. So as they go away, the, the value of these wines tends to go up. Um, and then some of these, especially from Burgundy, are made in such small little spaces that yeah. they can't expand. So like fi- high-end Bordeaux, first gross, they can keep expanding their their land holdings, keep calling them first gross. Whereas like a Grand Cru Burgundy can only be made in that little, you know, fenced-in clove pretty much. And then right. that's all it is. So You know what I think is interesting? I had a conversation with a friend once and we kind of had, the, I wouldn't even call it a debate, just a philosophical conversation about how a bottle of wine can actually be a piece of art. And it's sort of in a little ways, I mean, that's kind of exactly it because no one wine is really exactly, no, each, each bottle is very different. None are the same. It can be the same vintage, same producer, mm-hmm. same of that, but they're all just a little different, especially the experience that comes with them too. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of speaks and people invest in artwork all the time. <laughs> And another 
thing that we look at for these wines are the critic scores. So mm. you had Robert Parker recently retired, yeah. but we do lean on his scores for this upcoming Bordeaux Classics collection. They're two 100 point and two 99 points. Well, scores. he's unique because he didn't work for anybody. He didn't get a bump from a magazine or a newspaper for saying something. Yes, and you've kind of seen this gap with him no longer scoring wines. Mm. Who's going to be the the next big critic and we are on the lookout for that because that could be one of the opportunities that we create where we're doing research and it's like okay this person is the up-and-coming critic they're independent which we really like yeah and mm-hmm. uh, maybe we build a collection around wines that they just rated 100 and, be- mm-hmm. and we're, we're mm-hmm. early to that um and that's something that's interesting with our our british partners i was just having a conversation the other day with an, another investment opportunity and Basically, they were like, oh, this person's the next Jancis Robinson. So we're really getting to this, like, generational no, you're, shift. You're starting to get out in the yard with the big dogs. Right. So I was yeah. like, oh, so if we're getting the opinions and people are really respecting this person, but I haven't heard of them yet, it's like, oh, that's really exciting because we'll start looking at this person's score to really dictate quality. Because, yeah. you know, if you said Jancis Robinson 20, 30 years ago, people would have been like, oh, that lady who writes a column in this yeah. you know, publication. Right. right. So. <laughs> now she's bestseller and has wine books. And, and known for well, being very objective and honest. With try her. to read yeah. her book. It's the smallest print, the thickest, heaviest book. I just end up doing curls with it because I, I, can't, I can't get in the, in the print. But um, So I'm excited about, you know, like I'm, I've been thinking since you guys, I met you guys, you know, who would invest. And... Um, you know, Meredith's husband, Dave, did a great episode with us. It was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, season three, episode 11, he's, the, as you know, the GM of the Pelicans and just left the K- Cleveland Cavaliers. But he made a great statement, Meredith, when he said, wine is the new bling for the NBA. Mm-hmm. It's not the gold chains and the Rolls Royces. Yeah. And 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 you you were sharing a lot of the stories of when he was stuck in the bubble and how <laughs> yeah. they would sit around at night and compare each other's wines. Yeah. Apparently there was a lot of wine being shipped to the NBA bubble last yeah. year, that more than anything else coming in. And uh, yeah, so guys were, you know, trying to show up one another with who brought the the more the lesser known rarer wine more expensive but then there's also the flip side now that they're all trying to find what the next new deal is yeah which ex- is vent there you go i mean i definitely well, think so. and safety you know they want to really be safe with their investment right yeah <laughs> and you're like safety and wine i was like what yeah i know <laughs> um Can we hear a bit of that from our customers as well where they like to tell people that they're invested in in mm. wine. Um, people use the the cocktail party investment kind of analogy. Where would you tell someone about your investment in, say, a, a random stock? Probably not. Like Lou said, he's invested in all these different public companies. Like, ah, uh, gets a little boring. Like, yeah, you're invested in Screaming Eagle. You're invested in Sesakaya uh, or something. You know? Yeah, and. That's a conversation starter, mm-hmm. and we hear that from our customers, which is really cool. You get any kind of exciting people that are coming in? Let's Probably see. can't share that. That might be. I mean, I think it's really exciting when someone does a week of research on different wine investment platforms, and they're just, say, a self-directed investor, and it's like, wow, this thing is the best one out there. I think that's really exciting that's huge. for us personally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Or to Nick's point, uh, another investor it might actually be the same one. She's like, I've I've been investing for years. I've made all these great investments. I'm tired of investing in bonds. I view this as basically as safe as bonds, and your platform is so well structured that, you know, this is so much more interesting to me. But that, it, that's powerful what you just yeah, said. Yeah, mm-hmm. very really much. Because wow. Lord knows bonds are are. Are weird right now. Let's just say that. We, um, we've got a few MWs who've invested in the collections, friends mm. with our wine investment committee members. So it is starting to enter the, we are starting to enter the mainstream wine world. And these people are super knowledgeable and they're kind of tired. Of yeah. Them. When you see a master of wine put their money up. Yeah. I got to say that says something right there. They know a little bit more than me. <laughs> just a tiny bit <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah, Just touch. a tiny bit more. <laughs> To your point, to bring it back to the MBA part and also just the interest in the collections, you want to tell people. So, we have our champagne collection flew off the shelves because I'm sure everybody wants to be like, I'm invested in champagne. I, I think Meredith bought I, that I, one out. I would have done that. <laughs> but um, what, what we think will be cool is something on the MBA line is those are more wine nerd wines, something like a Domaine La Romani Conti Latash, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you'll see people like Steph Curry. Um, I, I don't know if it was that exact bottle, but this year he and Draymond Green, the I don't know if it's the GM or the president offered to get let them buy any bottle they wanted to celebrate the scoring level that they reached. Mm. And little did he know they would buy like a $5,000 bottle of wine. Yeah. And they had it all over Instagram. So that is introducing a lot of people to these unique wines that are investable that they've never seen before. But when they go to buy them or try to invest in them, they realize how expensive they are. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, I can never have any touch point with these wines. Well, with us, they'd be able to invest in a collection that basically is the exact same wines down the line, we'll have one with these types of wines that these MBA professionals are drinking on a regular basis. So you can be like, hey, I just like, I invested in the wine LeBron drank or the one that yeah. Steph Curry drank. Yeah, it gives you that connection to them. Yeah, I was speaking of um, the one that you just, the one that you just mentioned. Domain the, Romani. Um, okay. The Latoche, is that how you say Latosh. it? Latoshi. There goes my French. Yeah. <laughs> I'm awful at this. Um, we were just on vacation and I was perusing they had an amazing wine list at this restaurant we went to and they had that it was like 30 grand a bottle so see you're getting like a deal if you can invest and you get more than one bottle yeah (laughs) and that's for one one dinner one night one moment in time that you get that i was like i think it was like a an old i don't remember the vintage maybe like a 2001 or something it was a it was a older vintage but I just had fun reading the wine list. I will, I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, that's how it all started. You know, Popovich was kind of the guy that started it. And what happened, you know, when all these great coaches were young and, and scouting, they'd have to go to Europe for two, three, four weeks, you know, in Italy and France and look at these new talents that you see all over the NBA. Well, they, you know, in their downtime, what are you going to do? They started drinking, going to wineries. And that's how they got introduced. And he started the wine dinners. And Steve Kerr was working for him. So then Steve started it up there with the Warriors culture. And Dave does it uh, down at the Pelicans. So, you know, you see these cultures coming now from the assistant coach, you know, the the guys, the great coaches that were scouts. And now their scouts and their assistants are are starting to do it. So it's really a cool trend. And I think you guys are spot on in in what you've chosen. Mm -hmm. But Meredith... (laughs) 
You just can't wait any Billy longer. Billy, man, I cannot you wait, cannot man. cannot wait any longer. He, he, he's been trying to get through this podcast not thinking about the wine that Billy brought. Not that we've been talking really fast. <laughs> so we gotta, let's just skip over everything else and just get to what we really want to do. Thank you. Thank you. So Billy mentioned uh, when he was coming that he had a little treat for us. Yeah. Billy, what in the world did you just bring? And I think he should open, though, with how he came to have this <laughs> in his hands, because he did just have an amazing trip. Yeah, so, uh, well, I guess we'll start on what it is. It's a Tarantes from Madeira, and if, I'll, I guess I'll dive into like what Very Madeira is. No, rare. You, you need to explain this, because I don't, I mean, even Lou and I were like, okay, I know Madeira, but this specific grape varietal, not as familiar so with. So we'll, we'll start it as really rare. a yeah. really big funnel and work our way down. I okay. like it. So Madeira is a fortified wine from an island. It's technically part of Portugal, but it's an island off of Morocco. Yeah, like uh, 400 miles away from Portugal. Yeah, and actually like over 100 miles off the coast of Morocco. So basically in the middle of nowhere. But <laughs> it was used as a stopping point for transit to the New World back in the day. So both Brazil and the U.S. So during the revolutionary times, it was actually the most common wine consumed by like George Washington. Yeah, it took Jefferson. off like a like a rocket, you know, India, Europe, Africa, US, and Brazil. You know, cuz I, I guess it was the spoke of the uh, the central part of the hub. Yeah, so part of it was its geographic location and eventually it became its ability to survive these long journeys. So the way it became to be what it is now is a couple barrels were once sent across to Brazil the West Indies, and then it actually accidentally came back to Madeira. And after that heat and just bouncing around in a barrel for a while, mm-hmm. it came back, and they were like, wow, this wine's actually better than when it left. Shiphole wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah shiphole. So yeah. then they basically tried to figure out, they started sending these all over the world, and they were like, this is not economical to actually do this. <laughs> so some bright guy was like, oh, what are the elements? Like, it's in the heat and, like, in a barrel. So they just started putting it in these astufa systems, which are basically yeah, it's basically a series of attics. It's like the opposite of moving things. Lower. Rafters, yeah, like oh, it was. So a, the op- they call, didn't they call it like the Spanish name for rafter or the uh, Portuguese name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty rafter much. wine. Yeah. So they basically put it in the attic and move it down, rather than wine you typically find being in a cellar, and then they'll bring it up. Yeah. Almost kind of opposite the Solaris system. In a way, sort of? in a way, nah. but they just wanted oxygen okay, and mind. heat. Never mind. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, not not exactly like the Solera in that barrels aren't, you know, partially emptied and got it. into okay. each other. Got it. Okay. Um, but if you think it up to down. Yeah, yeah I was just of. directionally. <laughs> um, so the interesting part with these wines. So over time, they've not only been heated, but they're also fortified. So there's five varietals that typically go into Madeiras. Um, there's Tinta Negro, which is the most common one. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of drink wine drinkers or listeners of this show might come across Rainwater Madeira. That t- typically yeah. is Tinta Negro. And then you move up the line to what they basically, that's, they call that the driest. It's made in different styles, so it's not really. And then there's Cercial, which is um, Ishkana Cow is the Portuguese word for it. It means dog choker. It's so acidic that <laughs> Ooh, basically yummy. dogs will, like, you know, take a couple bites and spit it out. <laughs> Speaking that, of, that never... S- no. Seems well. If a dog spits it out, it can't be good. So it's a very, really bright acid wine. And that's something that's indicative in all Madeiras. But they have to make it in such a light, Is fresh that the Cercial? Cercial. Cercial, yeah. yeah. So then the next one up is Verdelu, which is basically kind of a little sweeter, a little darker. Um, and so it comes across medium, kind of like a nutty, Medium dry. Medium dry. Nutty. nutty. And when you're actually in Madeira, um, 
I guess we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute too. They'll describe these literally as dry to sweet. And then you just okay. at, tell them what you want. Okay. Um, and then we'll skip ahead a couple real quick. So there's Cerciol, Verdelu, um, Fual, which is basically kind of like a chocolatey mix, almost like a syrup. At that point, you're getting into like very much dessert wines. And then mm. Malmsey, which is made from the Malvasia grape. Mm, the British mm-hmm. just love calling things different names. So they called yeah. it Malmsey instead of Malvasia. Um, <laughs> but in between, there's two other grapes. Um, the most, I don't want to say most common rare. So there's one called Bastardo. They basically made, I think they said two barrels or three barrels, like, you know, a few years back. So it's almost impossible to find. So Bastardo is like this mythical grape that nobody's really finding. Um, I was on a search while I was there, could not locate any. But Tarantes is the other one that is very rare. And it's not Tarantes like in Argentina. Yeah, different. Yeah. And what is a problem with the grafting? It wouldn't graft well. Yeah. So in the 1800s, Madeira was hit by first odium, which is powdery mildew. It basically devastated the island in the 1850s. And right when they were recovering, uh, phylloxera came. And it Ugh. came a little after mainland. So that was the late 1800s. Wow. So Tarantes, which is T-E-R-R-A-N-T-E-Z, is a very rare grape. It was considered one of the best back in the day. It was basically considered the best um, because of its balance. It's right in that Cerciol Verdelu and the sweet wines. It was considered mm. to have the body of the bigger ones, but the lightness and freshness yeah. of the lighter ones. Nice. Um, so now there's only like 2.5, 2.4 hectares, I think, on the whole island. Oh. Um, it's very hard. They're trying to replant some, but it is very touchy. It doesn't graft yeah. well onto American rootstocks. Yeah. It's very susceptible to the powdery mildew. So it's, it's really hard to get these young vines up and going. Um, and I heard the, I read where the island's 6,000 feet oh, yeah. elevation. And it goes straight up so i mean it's a volcanic island and like we we went for a hike and you start in basically subtropical bananas are the main <laughs> agricultural crop like tropical and then you start going up and we basically went through like tall pines like redwoods all the way to the top it's just a rocky moonscape that sounds amazing Within, what's like, the rainfall like, like there it's a lot it, it rains a lot but it really oh, depends so. on the uh, side of the island you're on because oh, yeah the clouds kind of come and flow from like the north so it's really interesting one side of the island's really wet and rainy so certain varietals grow a little bit more. Most of the grapes are grown on the south side that are protected a bit by that giant mountain range. More dry, yeah. 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 So it was really fascinating. And one thing, it rains so much up in the top that they have these, like, canals that they built to bring water into the cities, and they still actually run Oh, I love day. that. So yeah. some of them are dry now, and you can hike on them, but we would just walk alongside, and there's all these paths, and they would open and close them to help people water their, their plants while they're there. Genius. <laughs> Except sometimes, apparently, they wouldn't tell you. When. How did you get there? Uh, we flew from Lisbon. So, but you you land on one of those leveled off rock face, you know, plateau runways Holy, that ends small in plane. the ocean. Yeah, small it was a little bigger than I would have liked. Um, yeah, say these. say a little prayer. <laughs> exactly. Like I've flown into Telluride. That's you know, a two seater plane on either side. So uh-huh. when you're you know you go, that's a flattened off mountain. This one was three seats on either side, like a full jet. Really? And I was like, and as we're going in, the pilot's like adjusting left and right. I was like, are you sure they've done this before? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, was... I did that with Tegucigalpa in, in Honduras. Uh. <sighs> yeah, they had to bank on the side of a mountain heavily and then come in and try to land. Oh, wow. Uh, <sighs> can you get there by boat? Can you avoid the plane? I mean, I know that would be a long... 400-mile boat ride. Yeah, yeah but... They might that or... I don't know. That plane ride just sounds... It's like transatlantic, isn't it? It was only a little bit of rockiness. It was... Yeah. Ah, he says that. <laughs> so it would be really far from Morocco. Yeah. Or the Canary Islands, I think, are really... That's so close. cool. Yeah. What does and it taste were, like? You were just there, right? <laughs> well, here, oh, let's, yeah. let's find oh, yeah. out. How about that? And you were... Uh, you're, this is on the heels. You were just there about a month ago? Yeah, we were actually there at the very end of 
July. So literally a month ago now, we were wow in Madeira, and it was it was really exciting. It's beautiful weather, and it was it, it was fantastic. Amazing. And this bottle is well, isn't that cool us, looking? Tell us, it's 1971. First of all, so it's a 50 year old bottle, and it's we're gonna post a photo because it's just such a cool bottle. Here, I'll pour it, and then we can talk more about okay. it. Okay. Oh my gosh. Smell that. Smell from here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the color would be definitely nutmeg color, wouldn't it be? Well, Walnut. I think they call it like tawny, right? When they tawny, call this yeah. Kind of in that orange, but tawny. Yeah, sort of a. Kind of a medium. It's not real. I mean, the, it's. But the nose is brilliant. Yeah, really so for 50 years, just look at it. I mean, even so, it's still pretty light. Yeah. It's not yeah. really oxidized. And then Madeira's. All of their wines, even the sweetest ones, have a nice backbone of acid, or like we were talking about earlier. So yeah. it really balances all the sweetness. This you'll, really smells bright. Yeah, so you'll taste you it. Can... And this thing could easily age for another 50, 60. <laughs> That's what I was saying. Yeah, I mean, 50, but this could keep. And what's also interesting, you said, is once you open this, you could, you can, as long as you keep the cork on it, you could another, you can keep it in your house for a year. You don't have to drink it all mm -hmm. in one sitting. Yeah. It's not like a, most wines where you need to drink them within a day or two or. Well, I can tell you this. Unfortunately for me, I'm about a two-ounce-a-year port guy. You know, unless I have a really, really nice port. I'm not into it. Cannot stand sherry. I don't even know why God invented sherry. <laughs> but this is like wow. dessert, refreshing. I would, I would be able to drink this pre-meal, <laughs> probably with some meals. What do you think, Mayor? I don't know. I feel like this is so fantastic. I almost want it by myself. To me, this was some cheese post dinner. Oh yeah, yeah, That's just what a beautiful I'm thinking, some like cheese. A yeah, cheese post dinner. Well, I brought uh, two cheeses today with it mm. that we're really proud of in Sonoma. They're from Vela, real, real famous cheese place. When you meet people in town that have foreign accents, you get to chatting with them, and you find out that. Um, you know, what are you doing in town? They go, oh, Vela, cheese. So um, this is an aged jack and then uh, one called Meso Seco, which is a more smoother jack. So yeah. we'll try out and see which ones pair the best. I got to talk about, so I'm typically a little scared of wines like this when I smell that, like, they're usually har yeah, that harsh. Arancio, if you will, is what that. Yeah, yeah. they're harsh. And they're, they're, har yeah. they're harsh um, when I go, to this is so smooth and that's that that balance that yeah. the torontes is known for because i mean the cerciols they actually do come off kind of harsh like yeah. verdelius are a little bit in the middle and then the other ones are kind of cloying this has that balance of like fresh and not and it's 50 years old and it's that fresh stuff. i mean right yeah. and this yeah. is kind of warm no Imagine it's incredible it fresh i mean this is yeah. like i like the temperature though do you? yeah yeah I, I mean i could do it a little cooler just to like i love to see it Kind of transform as so yeah. you mentioned rancio and i know that's controlled ferment what is that what exactly to me did you get to see that when you were over there well so that's to me it's more of a, a smell range like that's like that oxidized oh okay so yes. I, I use it as a scent stripper. yeah you're right um but it's more that like leathery tobacco like depth type thing mm -hmm. um it's whenever I, I taste, I smell like a really old aged oxidized wine. Yeah, you get that. Um, like Master Sommelier Peter Neptune, who was my WSET 3 teacher, used it a oh, lot. Oh, okay. And it actually, I, I Googled it after he said it because he, he uses a lot of certain terms that I'm always like, that's a really interesting word. I wonder if he just made it up or something. <laughs> right. It's actually in there. Yeah, it's, no. The, the, this is, 
I mean, I could, this is dessert to, to me. Like it's, but it's not so sweet. I guess that's what I'm, it's, I don't like overly sweet desserts either. I like just a hint of that sweetness and that's what I think about with this. There's enough sweetness there, but it goes back to your point. There's that bright acidity in there that's after 50 years. Yeah, and what's, what's interesting is it's 20%. I think it, they're normally fortified to 18%. And then right after that, when they're put up in the, um, the top level of the estufa, the water actually does not evaporate as fast as alcohol. So the alcohol evaporates off a little bit. So it almost goes back down to 17 or 16%. And they got to make sure it doesn't go too low. So it doesn't like either keep fermenting because there is sugar yeah, in here. Yeah. Um, but then over time, as it ages, sits for 50 years in the barrel, all the alcohol that would blow off at that point has, and then water starts evaporating. So then it condenses back down and actually raises the ABV per volume um, because it's not in the top okay. level of the estufa. It's helped in the cellar now. So what's, you know, slowly burning off is just just water over time. You talk about making the cheese taste good. Mm, you put a bite of that meso seco and sip this. Holy cow. Yeah, you sit around and drink this all night. You're going to be tore up. This is small sips, really slow. Mm. This would be fun on a like cold around the fire in the winter time. Mm. Oh yeah, like that's that's the beauty that you can't have it over a year because it's also the the depth of flavor. You have one sip and you can taste it for like ten minutes. So yeah, that's one of the things. Like one glass will get you really far. Yeah, have you opened others and have you seen it evolve? You open it and you go back a month later and try it. Is it completely changed or do these stay pretty? No, they're they're pretty accurate and like okay. i think what helps it is the acidity like i've opened mm-hmm. like some sherries before um i know you guys aren't fans but like olorosa is my girlfriend's kind of a fan and it goes from like oxidized and bright to just kind of like oxidized kind mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. almost this like beer flat. or something yeah yeah mm-hmm. so like this it'll stay but we have a 15 year um verdelu in our house and 15 year they do age statement wines so this is uh frescara which means like vintage wine but they frescara. do other they do age statement yeah. that are just like 15 oh. total years um, Which is like port. Yeah, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Like could port. have some older, could have some younger, but it tastes good. And that stayed fresh for months. Um, well, I know I can speak for Meredith and when we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for this for, for this wine, this sharing us. it with us. This, this is, is killer, brother. This is a big, 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 big thing that you did. I also feel educated because it's something I've never tried. I love finding something I've never gotten to try before. I know, and you explore. and I are like, we're really smarter after this. I know. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've had that before. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, we love the whole concept of Vint. And that's vent.co. And um, happy investing. I think uh, I think you guys have nailed it. Yeah. I'm really interested in getting involved. Um, and we'll give you all the information in our show notes on how to get a hold, you know, how to get involved and, and that. But uh, Billy and Nick, gosh, man, thank you guys so much. Yeah, thanks for coming to Sonoma. I mean, I know that hard to do to come out to wine country but we're so grateful that you came out and joined us and brought this fantastic wine and hopefully can hang out and show them introduce them some some of our friends and our buddies around wine country yeah yeah this has been it's gonna be awesome yeah i know so thank you again guys yeah thanks for having us yeah thank you this was a ton of fun And hey, everybody, if you want to get more involved in Vint, check out their Bordeaux Futures collection that releases on October 13th at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Starting at $70 a share, anyone can invest in some of the best wines in the world. And keep in mind that Vint's last two collections sold out in under an hour. And you do not want to miss out on this one. This one's unbelievable. And we've added a quick bonus episode so you can learn more about not only this collection, but what it means to buy wine futures. So make sure you check that out and then go to vent.co, not com, co, in order to invest. Thank you.